looking at our world from a theological perspective. This is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Tuesday, July the 11th, 2023. It is currently 9.29 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now, it's a good evening right now. Will it be a good evening about an hour and a half from now? I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be a good evening or not about an hour and a half from now, because I have a feeling I'm going to probably make everyone mad in this situation. But when people email me and say, review this, I do my very best to make it a priority. So what time was it? I received an email at... Uh, let's see, today, July the 11th, at 5.38 p.m. Central Time, July the 11th, 5.38 p.m. Central Time, I received an email, uh, The it, it, if I'm reading, well, the title of it is what caught my attention, all right? Sermon Review, Inerrantist Equals Judaizer. Now, what's an inerrantist? What's an inerrantist? Well, you probably hear the word inerrant or inerrancy. Are you familiar with those terms? An inerrantist is someone who believes in the inerrancy of religious scripture. So an inerrantist is someone who believes in the inerrancy of scripture. Now, I'm assuming if you are a Christian, if you go to church, you've talked about the inerrancy of Scripture, right? The inerrancy of Scripture. Biblical inerrancy is the belief that the Bible is without error or fault in all of its teaching, all right? Or a broader definition, biblical inerrancy is the belief that the Bible is without error or fault in all its teaching, or at least that Scripture in the original manuscripts... uh, does not inf- uh, uh, affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Some equate inerrancy with biblical infallibility. Others do not. So we could get into all the differences and distinctions about inerrancy, but the idea basically is that the Bible is without error. Now, many times it is taught that the Bible is without error in its original manuscripts, right? Others will say it, it's inerrant in, and it has been preserved. Some will say in the King James only. We could get into all of it, but the idea is that the Bible is inerrant. It's without error. Now, this person who emailed me, again, the title, Sermon Review, so they want me to review it, and then inerrantist, someone who believes in the inerrancy of Scripture, equals a Judaizer, now, if you remember, the Judaizers were those who came into the church who said, hey, 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 if to be a Christian, to be saved, you need to do this. And they started adding things, in a sense, to the gospel. I know that's like a, a, a very cliff notes understanding of Judaizers, but it's those who would be adding something to the gospel. No, no, no. You can't just believe in Jesus. You need this and this and this and this. So that raises the question. The doctrine of inerrancy. Does and this is a fundamental question. Does someone have to believe in the doctrine of inerrancy? Do you have to believe the Bible is inerrant? Do you have to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture in order to be saved? 
And you may say, well, you can be saved, but if later on when you learn the inerrancy, the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, if you reject it, well, then it proves you were never saved. Well, then meaning you have to believe it in order to be saved. So when it comes to being saved, this is very important, when it comes to being a Christian, must you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? And if someone says, nope, you don't have to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture to be saved, does that make them a heretic? Does that mean they're preaching a false gospel? And if you say one must believe in the inerrancy of Scripture in order to be saved, what other doctrinal truths must be believed in order to be saved? Like, when you when you evangelize someone, do you, how many things do you go through? Do you go through the inerrancy of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture? Do you, do you go through the hypostatic union? Do, do, I mean, well, like, what are the different things? Do you go through the or, order salutis, the order of salvation? How many things does... Does one, does a person have to believe in order to be saved? I think it's a, it's a very important question. Now, a lot of times people say, well, initially you can be saved, but then if you reject it later on, then you prove you were never saved. But that's just a semantics game because what you're really saying is you have to believe it in order to be saved. What is required for salvation? Now, they wanted me to review a sermon, and again, they call it Sermon Review, Errantist equals Judaizer, right? Then they say 29.24 in this video. So they want me to go to the 29-minute and 24-second mark, and then it says, please include his closing prayer in your review. So I'm like, what is this? Errantist equals Judaizer? And so obviously, I'm not going to jump to the 29-minute and 24-second mark. Clearly, I'm not. Now, he may have the file that has all of the music and everything before. I think this, uh, this, the, the link he sent me to has it. So I've got the audio file that removes all the singing and everything. It's just the sermon. So I, but I'm not going to skip anything. Now, as soon as I clicked on the link and I realized the sermon in question, I was like, oh, I was waiting for someone to email me. Because in uh, in the Christian social media world, at least on, I think on Twitter and maybe some, probably I'm assuming it's the same things happening on Facebook and, and maybe on threads, I, on all the different social media platforms, a lot of Christians are arguing about this sermon. And you know who the sermon is from? Andy Stanley. Oh, Andy Stanley. Always in the middle of controversy. We have reviewed many of his sermons. Now, Andy Stanley is one of those preachers that he, and I'm just going to refer to him as a victim here. He is a victim of what I call Christian social media drive-bys, all right? Christian Christian social media drive-bys, just like, you know, when people drive by and shoot up a, a, a house or shoot up people at a party. It's a horrible, tragic thing. Well, I think it's horrible and tragic when Christians do basically a social media drive-by. What do I mean by that? They grab someone's sermon. They'll grab a two-minute, three-minute, four-minute clip and just post it on Twitter or some social media account. And then everyone underneath just rips the person apart. The guy's a heretic. The guy's an idiot. The guy never reads his Bible. The guy doesn't know this. And they just attack the person with without mercy, without filter, nothing very godly about it. And you can't, I, I'm, I'm opposed to ripping comments out of people's sermons. So you know what I'm going to do. We're going to review the entire sermon. Now, do I agree with Andy Stanley? No, I don't agree with a lot of his preaching. Definitely don't agree with him theologically. But whether you agree or disagree with someone, as a Christian, 
We need to be fair. We need to hear them out. We need to try to understand what they are saying. I feel, and what I have seen, that the controversy is that Andy Stanley seems to imply, this is what I have seen uh, during some of those Christian social media drive-bys, that Andy Stanley seems to imply that one does not have to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture in order to be saved. And as a result, he's being called a heretic, false teacher, that he's denying biblical Christianity. You know, just you just write a list of all the things he's being accused of. So I would ask you that question tonight. Hey, does someone have to believe the inerrancy of Scripture in order to be saved? What is required to be saved? How many questions do you have to get right on a theology test in order to be saved? I think this is a I think this is a very important question. Do you have to know, do you have to know and believe and agree with everything in the Apostles' Creed? Do you have to know and believe everything in the Nicene Creed? Do you have to know and believe everything in the Athanasian Creed? Do you have to know and believe everything in the Chalcedonian Creed? Do you have to know and believe everything put forth by the first, say, six ecumenical councils? We can skip the seventh, or if you count the first one as the Council of Jerusalem. Okay, we can get into a whole debate about that, but what do you have to believe? I think I think this is a very valid Question And right now, it seems that a lot of people are saying inerrancy is a requirement in order to be saved. So in your evangelism, do you sit down and talk to them about the inerrancy of Scripture and say, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe he's the eternal son of God? Do you believe he came and died for your sins? Do you believe you are a sinner? Do you believe you deserve eternal condemnation? Will you trust in his sacrificial work on the cross? And do you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Or is it more important for them to believe in the doctrine of imputation versus the doctrine of inerrancy. Do they have to know they're going to be justified by an imputed righteousness versus an infused righteousness? Is that more important than the doctrine of inerrancy? The, these, are, these are important questions. Now, the sermon series that Andy Stanley has been preaching that has created a lot of controversy and a lot of buzz. In fact, I think we've reviewed one of the sermons from this. It's it's his sermon series called The Fundamental List. The Fundamental List. Not the fundamentalist, but the fundamental list. L-I-S-T. It's recovering the essentials of our faith. He's trying to, what he's trying to do in the sermon series, you go, here are the fundamentals of the faith. Here is what you have to believe. Here's what you need to believe. And I think a lot of people are upset because they feel he's leaving certain things out or he's not demanding belief about certain things. And well, people have been upset. This one is part eight, and it is entitled The Bible, again, by Andy Stanley. You can look up northpoint.org, northpoint.org, that's north northpoint.org, and you can look up the sermon series, The Fundamental List, The Fundamental The Fundamental. List, L-I-S-T, I keep wanting to sing The Fundamental List, The Fundamental List, 
And again, recovering the essentials of our faith. And you can listen to all of them. You should listen to all of them because this sermon series has created so much controversy and so many clips of Andy Stanley uh, and uh, from this sermon series has been posted all over social media where Christians, again, can do their little you know, social media drive-by. I, you may not like me calling it a social media drive-by, but that's what I feel like. When we think of a drive-by, we think how cowardly you're in your car, you go driving down the street, you roll down the window with three or, you know, two or three people, however many people who've got guns pointed out the window and you shoot at innocent people. They have no way to defend themselves. Well, it's Christians just grabbing a two or three minute clip from your sermon and then everyone just starts attacking you and shooting at you. Obviously, it's not near as violent, but I think it's just as cowardly and disrespectful. I got no problem if you disagree with a sermon. Just... Post a link to the entire thing and and address the entire sermon. Address the whole thing. You can, you may rip it into shreds, but at least everyone gets to hear everything that is being said. And and every once in a while, I'll see on one of those like you know attacks, someone will kind of come in there going, "Hey, does anyone have a link to the entire sermon?" And almost eighty percent, ninety percent of the time, no one provides the person who asks uh, an actual link to the entire sermon. And that's just crazy. If you're going to attack it, say, here's the clip, but ladies and gentlemen, here's the entire sermon. Please watch the entire sermon yourself and draw your own conclusion. But here's the section that really bothered me. Or turn on a microphone, do a podcast episode, and uh, review the whole thing. So here we go. Are you ready? I, there's no way we're going to finish this. There's no way. According to what I have in front of me, this sermon is 43 minutes long. To review a 43-minute sermon would probably take about two and a half hours of podcast time. So we'll break this into two parts. I hate breaking it into two parts, but we're going to jump in and here we go. All right. Are you ready? Andy Stanley. This appears to have been preached on July the 9th, 2023, which would have been Sunday, I believe. And so maybe this is why this this one is being controversial and I've seen stuff all over the place. And it's a part of his sermon series, The Fundamental List, and it's called Part 8, The Bible. And uh, we're going to review it, and we're going to see. All right? Inerrancy. Inerrantist. I think that's the correct way to say that. And according to the person who emailed me, they want me to review this, and they, they, they titled their email, Sermon Review, Inerrantist Equals Judaizer. So... Someone who, now, if you believe in inerrancy, I don't think you would be accused of being a Judaizer, but do you become a Judaizer if you say the doctrine of inerrancy is required for salvation? Does that equal a Judaizer? Well, we'll see. Does Andy Stanley say those words? I have no idea because you know the rules, ladies and gentlemen. I haven't watched or listened to the sermon in advance. I did play it for just a couple of seconds to make sure I got the sound quality, the sound volume right, but here we go. Take a deep breath. I got Bibles. I got a journal. I got a notebook. I've got uh, some historical documents open. I've got uh, the Clement of Rome and Augustine open. I don't know if I will need it, um, but just in case, here we go. So about 15 years ago, um, I was at home watching a YouTube video, and uh, there's a famous atheist, written lots of books, and I've read uh, two or three of his books, actually, um, listen to his podcast. And I was watching him on YouTube. He's in a university setting 
And he's going on and on and on about the absurdity of Christianity. And this wasn't like the title of his talk, but basically that was what it was about. And as I listened, and this was a, a really a defining moment for me, um, caused me to shift some things in terms of not my belief, but in terms of my approach to how I preach and teach and some of the language I use. Um, it has occurred to me as I listened to him that his entire talk was based on an assumption, a false assumption, but on an assumption that many Christians hold and many, um, in fact, most evangelical Christians hold, the one I was raised on. And, and the, the assumption was a false assumption, but again, it, it that the basically he was whole, his whole talk was based on the assumption that the foundation of our faith, um, what makes Christianity viable, what makes Christianity Christianity sustainable and plausible, that the foundation of the Christian faith is a Bible without any errors. Or, or okay, so he was listening to an atheist who said basically the foundation of Christianity is a Bible with any without any errors. Uh, and the foundation of our faith. Not let me. I could just pose that question to you. Do you believe the foundation of our faith, really the foundation of Christianity, is the belief in a Bible with no error? I think that's pretty essential, right? I mean, I mean, let's. I mean, just logically, I do believe there's some there's some truth to that, right? Because how can I believe anything about scripture? How can I believe anything about God or about salvation or about Jesus or about anything if I don't believe the, if I believe the Bible contains error? If like, I mean, I'm obviously got to have, I have to have a pretty strong trust in what the Bible says if I'm going to say, yep, I believe in Jesus. And yep, I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And yet I believe God is holy. And yet I believe I need salvation. And yet I believe, I, yes, I believe that, that, uh, Jesus, uh, sacrifice was a substitutionary sacrifice and paid for my sins. And yes, I believe that I'm justified by an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness. Obviously, I have to believe that information from some source. And what other source do I have than other scripture? So I have to believe the Bible is at, at a minimum trustworthy, you would think. Or if I don't believe the Bible is at least trustworthy, then I doubt I'm going to be believing any of these things. So I, I believe it's somewhat a fair criticism to say that Christian, the foundation of Christianity is a belief in a Bible without error, or at least you would have to say a belief in a Bible that is trustworthy, right? I think I think that's somewhat fair. Andy doesn't seem to necessarily completely agree with this. I'm going to back this up, though, and just play this whole thing again so we can put this in, in full context. So I want to make sure I'm not kind of cut Andy off there a little bit, so I want to be fair. So let, let's let this play. Here we go. So about 15 years ago, um, I was at home watching a YouTube video and uh, there's a famous atheist, written lots of books, and I've read uh, two or three of his books, actually, um, listen to his podcast, and I was watching him on YouTube. He's in a university setting, and he's going on and on and on about the absurdity of Christianity. And this wasn't like the title of his talk, but basically that was what it was about. And as I listened, and this was a, a really a defining moment for me, um, caused me to shift some things in terms of not my belief, but in terms of my approach to how I preach and teach and some of the language I use. Um, it has occurred to me as I listened to him that his entire talk was based on an assumption, a false assumption, but on an assumption that many Christians hold and many, um, in fact, most evangelical Christians hold, the one I was raised on. And, and the, the assumption was a false assumption, but again, it, it that the, basically he was whole, his whole talk was based on the assumption that the foundation of our faith, 
um, what makes Christianity viable, what makes Christianity, Christianity sustainable and plausible, that the foundation of the Christian faith is a Bible without any errors, or, or to use the modern term, an inerrant Bible. That was his assumption. So his argument went, hey, look at all these errors in the Bible. And he was pointing out historical errors and scientific errors and just some absurd things that were in the Old Testament in particular, and then some things in the New Testament as well. And his point is, look, these things aren't true. So if these things aren't true, the Bible isn't true. And if the Bible isn't true, the Bible can't be trusted. If all of it isn't historically, mathematically, and scientifically accurate, then why would anybody believe any of it, right? Might as well just dispense with the whole thing. And at the end of the day, we should just dispense with Christianity. And the crowd goes wild. It was amazing. But according to this misguided assumption, unfortunately, that too many Christians hold on to, and it's what we're talking about today, is that the legitimacy of Christianity is precariously, and it's a little bit clunky statement, I made it up, that the legitimacy of Christianity sits precariously atop a collection of errorless or inerrant ancient texts. That was the assumption of his talk. And then he just dismantled the text. And if you dismantle the text, you dismantle the Bible, you dismantle Christianity, we're done here. The assumption being, if there is an error in the Bible, Christianity becomes indefensible. It's a house of cards. You just pull out the creation account. You pull out Leviticus. You pull out some things from the New Testament. The whole thing comes crumbling down. Goodbye, Bible. Goodbye, Christianity. Okay, Andy doesn't seem to agree with that assumption. He seems to agree that... He seems to be implying that, hey, if the Bible has error, we're still okay. Now, I got to think about this logically, right? Because, I mean, the only thing I know about Christianity, right? The only thing I can know about God, about salvation, about imputation, substitutionary atonement, atonement, forgiveness of sins, heaven, hell, judgment, law, it comes from the pages of the Bible, So how many errors can you find in the Bible? How many errors can you find before you say, well, I mean, I mean, I can just ask you, okay, let's say someone finds 15 errors in the Bible. These are absolutely errors. Now, it's one thing to find maybe issues with translation or issues and copies uh, because, but I'm saying if, if we believe that the original manuscripts were inspired and inerrant, How many mistakes, how many problems can we find in the text before you would logically have to say, well, I can't trust any of it? How many errors can be there? Andy seems to imply, hey, we could find errors and it wouldn't matter. Our faith would still be like based off what? Based off Jesus? Well, I don't know anything about Jesus apart from the Bible. Based off God? Well, I don't know anything about God apart from the Bible. And if the Bible has things that are not trustworthy, I do believe Christianity is like a house of cards and it comes crumbling down. I'm curious how Andy is going to try to approach this. In a, it seems he wants to make an argument that no, 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 no. Our, our faith does not sit atop of, you know, an errorless book. It, 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 our faith is based off something else. Let's see how he handles this. Now, this is not true, which will come as a relief to some of you, but will sound like heresy to others. So pay close attention. 
Today, we're wrapping up our series that I've so enjoyed putting together. And I think some of you enjoy, have enjoyed as well. The Fundamentalist, subtitled Recovering the Essentials of Our Faith. In this series, if you've not been tracking along with us, and I hope you'll go back and watch or listen to this entire series because each part builds on the other. The, uh, the, fun, the, the bottom line for this series is that we're asking the question, what must a person believe, not do, but what must a person believe in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus? We talk about the do part all the time because it's so important because doing is what actually makes the difference. But we've stepped back from that to ask the question, okay, if I'm gonna be a Jesus follower, what must I believe in order to follow Jesus? What's essential? What's the irreducible minimum? And this is an important question because as you know, there are so many versions of Christianity. Christianity is like a big house of living rooms with front doors all facing the outside world. But every time you go into one of these rooms, these Christian rooms, these Christian traditions, these Christian denominations, Christian churches, you discover that each one has its own terms and conditions, its own expectations and traditions, its own Bible, its own text, and its own interpretation of text and its own um, way of prioritizing the text. And we are part of that group. We're, we have our own traditions. We have our own way of approaching things. We have our own way of prioritizing certain texts over the other. So the question is, with all these differences, how do you know? Because the one thing that we all have in common, every church, every denomination, every expression of Christianity, every Christian tradition, the one thing we all have in common, including us, is we think we're right and that everybody else is not quite as right as we are, right? That they just need to be as right as we are. They need to see the Bible the way we see it. They need to prioritize the way we see it. They, that we need to approach God and approach prayer and approach everything else the way that we see it. So everybody kind of feels like they're right. Then, and that's not such a big deal, but what really makes it complicated Okay, well, I do agree that everyone, that Christianity is like all, all of these living rooms and you walk in and it's completely different. I, I don't believe that's okay. That's maddening to me. I do believe everyone thinks they're right. I do believe they think that they're more, more right than everyone else. And then we condemn everyone else. That, that is troubling. That bothers me. It should bother everyone. And, and my, from my perspective, it should bother every single Christian. If look, if we, if Christianity is based off the word of God and we all have a copy, why is it that nobody can read it and come to the same conclusion about anything? Why do we all think we're right? We think everyone else is wrong. Everyone thinks our interpretation is right. We can't agree even on the principles of interpretation. We can't agree on anything. It, I don't believe it's okay. I believe it's tragic. It's horrible. It's horrifying. It's depressing. It's discouraging. And it makes me want to scream and say and throw everything away and just go to the nearest liquor store. Okay, maybe that's a little hyperbole, but not much. It just it does drive me to the point of just like what's the point here? So, all right, I'm I, I on one hand I I agree that the fundamental question here is what must you do in order to be saved? But I'm a little concerned that he seems to say, hey, you don't hey, it's wrong to believe that Christianity requires an, a, a Bible that is inerrant. I, I just, I just don't know how, like, I understand when you first become a Christian, you may not understand all of that, but you, but even to become a Christian, you have to believe obviously the things you're being told about Christ is true. And I'm assuming you're going to know they're true, they're, that they're being told you that you're hearing about these things from scripture. So you, you you have some level of trust in it. So my question is, how many errors can be in the Bible before all that trust would just go away? So, all right, I'm trying to follow him. I'm trying to I'm trying to be fair here. There's a part of this I kind of agree with, and there's another part that I'm like, 
what are you doing? What are you doing? And then I completely disagree that it's no, hey, it's okay that we don't all agree. No, it, 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 it's not okay. It's not okay. All right, but let's, let's see where this goes. ...is that in every generation, beginning in the second century, this isn't new, in every generation, new and novel ideas get woven into the fabric of Christianity and get woven into the fabric of certain Christian traditions. And often these new and novel ideas get elevated to the point where they're considered essential, doctrine, fundamental. In other words, if you reject one of these new and novel or modern ideas, you're out. You're not a real Christian. You're not a real Jesus follower. Now, I think I do believe there's a little bit of truth to this, right? That over time, he calls them new and novel ideas, different doctrines, different ideas are elevated to, if you don't believe this, you're out. I do, I do agree that that happens. And, and, and that is a struggle because throughout church history, obviously theology has developed new issues and certain issues arise to, and sometimes they're, they, I think they change through generations and through periods of time, but, but things do get added. Like you must believe this, 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 you must believe this. And if you don't, you're a heretic and you're thrown out. So I do like what he's attempting to do. Well, wait, wait a minute. What is the fundamental list that we must believe in order to be saved, to be a Jesus follower? Okay. I, I do like what he's attempting to do. And I do believe it's a very uh, important conversation to have about how many things have been added. So there's a part of me. I know that what he's trying to do is co- going to be controversial. I know what he's trying to do is going to get him called to be a heretic because you look Every church has all of their, like, you got to do this. You got to do this. You must believe this. You must believe, like, I, I, who knows how many fundamental lists there are out there of lists of things you must believe in order to be saved. I think every church has their own list. Um, and it, so it would be crazy. So I think it's an awesome idea what he's attempting to do. I'm just a little worried about where this is possibly going because he seems to really undermine the inerrancy of scripture here, which is a little concerning because then I don't know what, where do you get any information from? But, but maybe he's going to explain this and maybe I'm jump, maybe I'm starting to jump the gun a little bit. Maybe I'm starting to, 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 I need to be patient and let him explain it. So well, I'm going to be as patient as I can be. Here we go. So it creates all kinds of confusion because these things happen and change really almost every generation. And so the reason we're talking about this is because you're smart and you're honest and you're curious. And when smart, honest, curious people realize that non-essentials have been woven into the fabric of their particular church or their particular denomination or their particular faith tradition, thoughtful and honest people feel like they have to step back and reevaluate not quit believing in God and not even quit believing in the deity of Jesus, but they, it's like, wait a minute, I, 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 you talk a lot about the Bible and you know the Bible, but I'm not sure you, you know Jesus. And so people feel the pressure to kind of deconstruct and to deconstruct is to say, hey, I need to tear this thing down to the bare essentials. I need to tear this down to the fundamentals so that I really know the foundation of what I believe and why I believe it. And I, I think my church has departed from it or I, I think my denomination got it wrong or I think my faith tradition isn't exactly right about that. So people step out and generally they just step out of organized religion. And sometimes... They never go back. So we're asking the question, what is fundamental? 
what is essential, what is fundamental in terms of what we must believe in order to be a follower of Jesus versus what's just cultural or what's familiar or what's comfortable or what's fashionable, but peripheral. So we've said so far, we've discovered seven things. And we've done these chronologically, basically as we follow Jesus through the gospel. So I'm gonna hit these real quick. And then for those of you who are watching, if you're at any of our local churches, we're gonna send you an email this week with the list of these eight fundamentals so that you can keep these in front of you. So here they are real quickly. Number one, Jesus is God's son and our king. We started with this one because this is what Jesus claimed about himself. Number two. Now, I just want you to realize Jesus is God and King. That's what Jesus said about himself. How do you know he said that? Where do you gather that information that Jesus said it about himself? Oh, you get it from scripture. If scripture isn't inerrant, then why, then how can you expect anyone to believe what Jesus said about himself? If you're going to say, well, the Bible is an error in Leviticus or the Bible is an error in Genesis or the Bible is an error in math or like if you, if you start saying that the Bible is filled with certain errors, so therefore you don't have to believe in an inerrant scripture, then when you start reading the New Testament and Jesus makes claims that seems to imply that he is God, then why would you believe that? So like like his very first fundamental would require an inerrant Bible <laughs> because if it's not an inerrant, then how can you believe what Jesus said about himself? Because where are the words recorded of what Jesus said about himself? They are found in scripture. Therefore, the scriptures have to be, I mean, even if you don't want to go with the word inerrant. Pretty close to 100% trustworthy because even if they're only 90% trustworthy, then how can I trust what Jesus said about himself? Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what God the Father is like. That's what he claimed that one of his purposes in coming was. Number three, Jesus defines sin specifically as anything that harms you or others. Number four, now, so, so number one, Jesus is this, the, the son of God and king. And, and number two, he came to reveal the father. That, well, that's talking about the incarnation. And number three, he defines sin. All of that would require you trust what Jesus says. That all of that would require you trust the Bible. Because you don't get that information from any other source. So if these are fundamentals, where do the fundamentals come from? They come from the Bible. Well, these can't be fundamental unless the Bible is fundamentally 100% trustworthy. I, I don't know how, how I, this is weird how this is, his previous points require an errant Bible or at least a trustworthy Bible or at least a, an inspired Bible. I mean, like, I, I don't know where he's going. I, I'm gonna, I've gotta get, I, I know I'm getting, I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but he, those re opening statements made it sound like that he was kind of like, no, it's not, it's not true. We don't have an errorless Bible. You don't have to believe that. Now, are you saying you don't have to believe that in order to be saved? Well, okay, we, we can discuss exactly what you mean by that. But once again, I would say anyone who says, you know what? I'm a sinner and I believe in Jesus, even though they may not be believe in the inerrancy of scripture, it's implied with them saying, I believe these things, that they're believing these things because they have to know they came, that information came from somewhere and it came from the Bible. So they are inherent, they are implying, if not explicitly, 
but they're implying, in, in, at least in an indirect way, that they're trusting the information that they are currently believing in, which means they have to trust the Bible. For that Jesus promised justice in the end and invites us to trust him in the meantime. And number five, that Jesus died for your sin to reconcile you to God. This is where many of us probably thought we would begin, but we don't discover this until the, toward the end of the journey with Jesus through the gospels. And then number six, that Jesus established an ecclesia, a movement, a group of people that we call the church. And the church, we discover, is God's agent of transformation personally, culturally. I, I, I'm just starting to laugh because, hey, number six, Jesus founded an ecclesia. He founded a church. Now, you're, he's the pastor of a church. Yeah, so, so clearly, when the Bible speaks of the church, speaks of the structure of the church, people giving money to the church, none of that contains any error. That is accurate, right, Andy? Okay. When it comes to the church, it's accurate. When it comes to people attending church, giving to the church, serving the church, those scriptures are 1000% accurate. Maybe Leviticus, not so accurate. Maybe Genesis, not so accurate. But lo and behold, it's a miracle. It's a Christmas miracle. When it talks about the church... It's accurate and people need to attend and people need to give, right? Isn't that kind of convenient? (laughs) Isn't that really convenient? Hey, that Genesis thing, you can't trust that book. Leviticus, what kind of walked out nonsense is that? Hey, but when Jesus talks about the church, those words are without error. See, okay. And ultimately, globally, and this is why number seven, Jesus said at the very end of this ministry, I want you to take what I've taught you and I want you to teach others. I want you to teach every nation and people in every nation and every generation to do what I've taught you to do and to view and approach God the way I have taught you to view and to approach God. Now, to me, those seven points all require you have an authoritative source from which you gather that information. Where does the information for those seven fundamentals come from? I'm holding it in my hands, ladies and gentlemen. It would come from the Bible. And you would have to trust that in those seven things, the Bible would be trustworthy. So how could he get to number eight and say something possibly different. Now, someone uh, posted something in chat and then it disappeared. So I don't, <laughs> either they're like, no, I disagree with you. I'm changing my, I'm changing my answer. But uh, if you posted something in chat, just let, just let you know, it disappeared. I don't know why, but all right, I digress. But uh, so I, I just feel like this is kind of weird. Um, yes. Okay, good. Someone just said, right, because where did he teach that? Like, to me, if you're going to say these seven things are fundamental, and then you get to number eight and go, hey, guys, just so you know, you don't have to really believe in an inerrant scripture. And and if he's going to imply in any way, shape, or form that the Bible is not inerrant and that it has error, then how do those seven things stand? Because then someone could say, guess what? Not only do I believe Genesis is wrong, not only do I believe Leviticus is wrong, not only do I believe the science and the math and the history is wrong, I believe everything Jesus said was wrong. Okay, well then 
those seven fundamentals that he just mentioned, then they collapse. He, remember, he, he kind of mocked the idea that the Christianity setting precariously, I think is how he said it, on, on a errorless book. That, 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 that's almost ridiculous and, and, and it's not true. No, I believe you've just now created a house of cards and now you're going to pull out the Bible from it. Your own house of cards are going to collapse. But let's, let's see where this goes. So today, as we wrap this up, number eight, we're going to talk specifically about the Bible. Now, this one's a little different because Jesus never mentions the Bible because there was no Bible. The Bible wasn't assembled the way we think about the Bible until the fourth century. So this one is a little different, but we're asking the same question. What must we believe about the Bible or what must one believe about the Bible to be a follower of Jesus? In other words, what is essential? Okay, now when he says there wasn't a Bible, I, I, I know he's, uh, he's speaking of the Bible that we have, but there was clearly an Old Testament scripture. There was clearly an Old Testament canon. I mean, when Jesus walked into the synagogue, he found the place to read. He was reading from the Old Testament. Jesus talks about the Psalms and the prophets, the law. All right. So, so clearly Jesus makes references to Genesis. He, I mean, look how many times the Old Testament is quoted in the new. So there was scripture. You may not refer to it as a Bible, but it, there was scripture, right? So, so we got to be, I don't know exactly what he kind of means by that, but I'm, I'm trying not to, I'm trying not to cut him off. I don't, I, but I'm just getting nervous here where he's going. Okay. But all right. I, I, I got to let him I got to let him just take it wherever he wants to. It's almost like I'm trying to help him out. Hey, Andy, stop, 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 stop. Where are you going? It's like I'm trying to help him out. I can't help him out because this was preached on Sunday. All right, but here we go. Let's see where this is going to go. And here's what I want to say to some of you. If you left, if you left your faith, if you left the Christian faith because of something in or about the Bible, I'm so glad you're listening and I'm so glad you're watching. This is for you. Okay, so he wants to talk to the people who left their faith because of something about the Bible. And he's so glad they're listening because he wants to talk to them because he wants them to come back to the faith. But it seems he wants them to come back to the faith. This is what I'm feeling. This is where I feel it's going. Remember, I don't listen to these in, in advance. I'm, I'm just, I'm preemptively offering my thoughts here. He seems to be implying that, hey, good. I'm glad you're here. You can come back to your faith because you don't need the Bible. But you do if you just said those seven things are fundamental. Someone in chat just said this. I wonder if he's trying to overcome the objection so he can continue the conversation. However, the issue with that would be the person you're interacting with would have to ignore where all the other fundamentals came from. Exactly. And so he's, if he's like, hey, hey, if you deconstructed and you left the faith because something about the Bible, well, I've got good news. Come on back. You don't need it. But you do need the seven fundamentals that this series has given you so far. But I don't know how you get those seven fundamentals without a Bible. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you do that. This is, this is, uh, this is fascinating so far. It's only fascinating because it seems to me he's created a bigger problem. He's trying to solve a problem, but he just created a bigger problem because Hey, you've got to have these seven fundamentals. These are absolutely fundamental. 
But then he's going to somehow say you don't need a, a, a trustworthy Bible. I, I don't know. I don't know. Let, let's see where this is going to go. This is the Bible my dad gave me when I was 16 years old. Um, he gave it to me and he, he had marked it with this yellow ribbon. He said, Andy, I want you to take this. This is, I want to give you this Bible. And I want you to memorize David's speech to Goliath when he went down into the Valley of Allah to you know, fight Goliath. And I want you to memorize that speech. He said, and I want you to memorize it. So whenever you're tempted to sin, you just quote this speech back to your temptation because that's like a Goliath in your life. I thought, I love that. So I memorized the entire speech. You come to me. Okay, I don't love that. That's the absolute most twisting of scripture I've ever heard in my entire life. You speak to Gol- your temptation like David spoke to Goliath. That, that's insane. I don't even know. I don't know what hermeneutic that is. I don't know what form of application that is. There's a million problems with that. But we, we but, 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 but maybe, maybe we need to do a, a podcast episode about that. So someone look up David's speech to Goliath. Find the scripture, have it marked, and maybe we need to do an episode. Can you take the speech of David spoken to Goliath and use that in your battle against temptation? Because I know, number one, it wasn't the speech that defeated Goliath. It was a stone to the forehead. So how do you apply that? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Hey, whoever is tempting you, you go get you a slingshot. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Or just give them the speech. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how that works. All right. Let, let's, who knows? All right. All right. But I, I digress. I, I, I'm, see, they're, they're, they're distracting me. Okay. We got, we got to focus here. We got to, come on, stop distracting me. We have to focus here. Here we go me with a sword and a spear and a shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day, I'm going to strike you down. And then it gets great. It's about gore and heads falling and the birds are picking the flesh off the Philistines and they chase them. And it's the perfect passage for a 16 year old to memorize. Now it's kind of a long speech. And I think the reason he wanted me to memorize it is by the time you finish quoting that speech back to your temptation, you've pretty much forgotten what you were tempted pretty much forgotten what you were tempted. Now, here's Okay. <laughs> that's funny. All right. I, I, that, come on. That made me laugh. That, that's that's funny, right? Hey, by the time you're done quoting this, you've already forgot about the thing tempting you. Come on. That's all right. That's that's pretty funny, okay? I still think it's a horrible way to apply scripture, but that that's that's funny. All right. Let's continue. The thing, like many of you, when I when I was I was, I was raised in church, preacher's kid, I was given a, you know a little red Bible with my name on the front, and I was given this Bible and had several Bibles. But when the Bible was first presented to me, it was presented to me as God's word, all true through and through. God's word, all true through and through, and I believed that before I ever read it, like many of you, and most evangelical Christians, of which I am one. Most evangelical Christians hold to some biblical view or some, some view of biblical inspiration, infallibility, or inerrancy. Um, and and you, most of you probably do as well. However, and I'm not picking on you, I'm just pointing out something that's kind of obvious. Regardless of which words you choose, if you choose one of these words, you probably 
couldn't define it exactly, but you, you just believe God gave us his word and God spoke and, and we have it. And you know, there's just a general sense that the Bible's inspired or it's infallible or there are no errors, it's, it's inerrant. So when I chose to go into ministry, I thought if I'm gonna spend the rest of my life teaching from this and preaching from this, I need to know exactly. I, I, it's not enough to say it's inspired. Okay, what does that mean? It's infallible. What does that mean inerrant? What, really, there are no errors. So I chose the most conservative um, graduate school in America when it comes to a high view of the Bible and the inerrancy of scripture, Dallas Theological Seminary. And it was not part of the denomination I grew up in, which was kind of a problem because when I chose to go there, my dad was actually the president of the denomination whose schools I did not choose to attend. So that was an interesting conversation. But the reason was I needed to know and I wanted to know and I chose a grad school accordingly. And I had the privilege of studying under this gentleman, Dr. Norman Geisler. We call him Storman Norman Geisler. He was amazing and he was brilliant. And he was the editor of this, of this book, Inerrancy. Uh, this is a standard textbook in every conservative um, evangelical school, seminary, graduate school, or college. It's, it's still in print. It's still, it's still a textbook. It's, it's dense. Again, it's, it's very academic. So in his lifetime, he passed away in 2019, July of 2019. He was the champion of biblical inerrancy. And I took every single class I could under Dr. Geisler. I remember walking out of an apologetics class one day. This is in Dallas, Texas. I'll never forget. I, in fact, when we visited the school a few years ago, I, I took the people with me to the place where I was standing. I walked out of class one day after sitting through one of his lectures. And when he would finish... You know, there, there was like a bell that rang. I don't know if they still do that in school, but we actually had a bell, you know? And we wouldn't move. It was just like, it was, I remember walking with my briefcase coming down. We had to wear ties, you know, and I walked down. I can remember where I was standing on the sidewalk and I looked up in the sky, blue Dallas, clear sky. And I said under my breath, God, I've always believed you were real. Today, I know with certainty. It was, it was so powerful to sit under his teaching. And he taught us the doctrine of biblical um, inerrancy. Now, a few years ago, some of you may remember this. I did a series called Who Needs God? And during the series, Who Needs God? I talked about the Bible in ways that we're gonna talk about the Bible today. And some evangelical leaders took me to task and on social media um, said all kinds of critical, rude things. Andy doesn't believe the Bible, Andy, da, 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 da. And the problem with when they criticize me, they're really criticizing you. And I don't care if they criticize me because I, I just take the most cr strange ones and make pictures of them and put them on my phone, show my kids. So it doesn't bother me. <laughs> But when they start criticizing the people in our church, oh, you know, they're just following along, they're goats, you know, they're mindless. And I'm like, are you kidding? We, we have like the smartest, most insightful, most curious group of Jesus followers in the world in our churches. That's, that's what I think about you. But anyway, so they were critical of me during this series. So about two thirds of the way through the series, Sunday afternoon, never forget, sitting on the front porch after Sunday, kind of, you know, just trying to recover a little bit. And the phone rings, I look, and it's from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I only knew two people who live in Charlotte. So I answer the phone and I hear this voice, <clears throat> Andy, this is Norm Geisler. Now there's only three people that make me feel like I've been sent to the principal's office, okay? <laughs> um, if God called me, you know, if my dad called me or Norm Geisler, it's like, okay, am, am I in trouble? And I'm telling you, here's what he said. <clears throat> Andy, I see you've gotten yourself into a little trouble. <clears throat> He said, 
People don't understand apologetics and they don't understand what the Bible is. You keep going. That's good apologetic preaching. I know. And I'm like, thank you, Bill. You don't have to clap, but thanks. Anyway, so, but that's, that's all I needed to hear. Now, there's a reason I'm talking so much about me today, but I'll get there in a minute. So that was so, and then he said this, he said, but you need to write about it. It's not enough to preach about it. People don't understand. And he just talked and, you know, he's very academic and just brilliant beyond brilliant that, you know, the average Christian doesn't think in these terms. So Andy, when you say those kinds of things, it just, it just confuses them. And I'm thinking, not the people in our church. They, I didn't get any criticism from the people that were actually in our church. But anyway, he said, you need to write about it. I'm like, like write a book about it? He goes, yep, you have to write about it or people are never, I'm like, I don't have time to write a book about it. That's so academic. He said, you gotta write about it. So when I, I wrote the book, Irresistible, in response to Dr. Norman Geisler, who taught me the doctrine of inerrancy, that's why, where, where the book came from. So the point is, the reason I'm telling you all that is, I understand the tension that we're about to step in for the next few minutes. And I'm gonna assume he's listening today to ensure I don't lead any of you astray, okay? So that's kind of the background. But the- Okay, now, I don't know where he's going. I'm already a little concerned, but I will 100% agree and acknowledge there is tension sometimes when you get into the issues about the scriptures. There is a tension sometimes about, well, textual variants and how the canon was formed and who made that decision. And wait, wait, was it the church? And if it was the church, then the church. Oh, we can go. There, there are issues that create tension. I agree. And I do agree that there are a lot of people out there who don't like to walk down the path of questions and tension. They just want the answer simple. They want it black. They want it white. And if you, if you try to navigate in that middle and you acknowledge the problems and the difficulties, they get nervous, they get upset and they attack. And especially if you're someone as well known as Andy Stanley. All right. So I do agree with him. Now he's made me nervous. I'm just going to, I'm just going to admit that, but I'm willing to hear him out. Because I, I want to know where he's. I want to know where he's going. I want to know. I, I mean, look, I, I do agree that there's a, there's a lot of issues and tension with dealing with anything in Scripture. You're just kind of like, well, wait a minute. What about this? What about that? Uh, someone in the t- uh, chat just said, "I'm so curious where this is going." One minute I think he's off the rails, and the next I think, good point. Very curious where this will go. I agree. I'm, I'm kind of the same way. I'm like. Oh man, you seem to have lost it. And then I'm like, okay, well, okay, okay. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. And only because I, I'm, I'm, I'm very understanding because I get myself in the same trouble. Like so many times when I deal with issues, people are like, how dare you? You and I get accused of so many things, and it's like because you don't, you're not listening to me. You, you don't want to even try to navigate the complexities and the and the layers and the difficulties. You just want it simple. But I'm not going to give you your simple little answer. But at the same time, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm nervous. So are you ready? I know we're at 54 minutes. Should we stop now and wait till tomorrow? No, no, no. There's no way. We can't stop now. That'd be like a cliffhanger, right? Come Tune in next week as we return to the scene of the crime. Okay, no. All right. We, we, I don't know if there's a crime that's about to be committed or not. Okay, who knows? This may be the greatest sermon on, on inerrancy ever preached. Who knows? But we're going to keep, we're gonna, we, can, we got to keep going. I can't stop. All right, I can't stop. Can you stop? I can't stop. All right, here we go. The bottom line is this, bottom line is this, 
When it comes to what you must believe about the Bible in order to be a follower of Jesus, it really boils down to this. You have to believe when it comes to the Bible that Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John are reliable accounts of actual events. That's it. That Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John are, are a reliable account of, an actual, of actual events. Because if you adopt any one of the four gospels as something that's a reliable account of actual events, you're there because both of the, all four of these gospels present Jesus as God's son and your king. And everything we've talked about in this series flows from that one simple idea. Okay, I think I'm understanding the logical structure he's trying to create here. All you need to do is to to be a Jesus follower. All you need to do to be a Jesus follower is to believe Matthew, Mark, Luke, I think he says, or John, I would say and John, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you believe these to be reliable and that will get you to the seven fundamentals. If all you have is Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and you believe that they are reliable, that will get you to those seven fundamentals. Now, I, 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 there's a part of me that can almost understand this, right? Because if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are reliable, and so I get to those seven fundamentals, that's enough to be saved. Okay, that's, that's okay. Now, my, my only issue would be, well, wait a minute. Why would I believe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is reliable, but not believe Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, on and on and on? Why would, like, if I can believe the others are not reliable, then why would I believe Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John is reliable? Like, well, Acts, not reliable. Romans, not reliable. First Corinthians, not reliable. Jude, not reliable. Like, how would I be able to determine that Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John is reliable, but not the rest of the Bible? But at the same time, I can understand that, hey, if someone is going to be saved, what do they need to believe? Well, they need to believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John is reliable, and it teaches those seven fundamentals that he has presented in this series. There's a part of me that says, okay, that sounds okay. I do believe if you just believe those basic seven fundamentals, that's probably enough for salvation. I think there's a little bit of truth to that. Now, the, the question is, though, logically, how does that stand? Because if you believe these four or, or one of the four or two of the four, if you believe Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John to be reliable, but you don't believe the rest of the Bible to be reliable, I don't know then on what basis you would say those gospels are reliable. But in order to be saved, I agree that you you just have to believe some basic information is reliable. I can agree with that, that Jesus is the eternal son of God, that Jesus died for your sins, that Jesus, you know, uh, was, you know, uh, born of a, you know, I, I think the basic elements now, I, I know Andy Stanley's had some issues with the virgin birth, but, you know, the incarnation, I think you would have to believe the incarnation or he's not the eternal son of God, uh, that he died, was buried, rose on the third day, ascended to the right hand of the father. I, I would think the basic basic elements of the Apostles' Creed, really, actually. Um, so, okay, I see what he's trying to do. Hey, guys, if you don't trust the Bible, all you need to do is just trust what Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John says, and that will get you to salvation. And then the rest of it is okay. The only problem is, logically, 
I think you, you may you may give yourself a little bit of room, but ultimately it's going to fall apart logically because, wait a minute, if you don't believe the rest, why would you believe anything in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? That that would only see to me it's like okay hey oh you don't you don't want to be a Christian because you don't believe in Genesis well that's okay throw out Genesis you just got to believe what's in Matthew Mark Luke or John but wait a minute how much would you really understand about your need for salvation without Genesis or without other books also I oh, I see what he's trying to do I just don't I don't know if it sustains itself logically but all right let, let's see how he continues. It means that what he said about God is true, what Jesus said about you is true, and what Jesus said about the Hebrew scriptures is true. That Christianity does not rise or fall on our ability to prove that the Bible is without error. Now, wait a minute. If you've got to believe what Jesus said about the Hebrew scriptures is true, are you going to tell me Jesus would not have clearly given you the impression that they are historical, accurate, and true? They're saying that we don't have to believe in, we don't have to defend the inerrancy of scripture. Okay, I'm I'm hearing you, but you just now seem to infer that I got to believe what Jesus believes about the Old Testament. Well, then let's find every quotation that Jesus, every time Jesus made any reference to the Old Testament and see if we can determine kind of what he would lead you. Is he not kind of leading you to some concept of inerrancy and inspiration? I learned this from the guy who edited the book, Inerrancy. Because people were following, we've talked about this before. People were following Jesus for 300 plus years before the first Bible was assembled. First century Christians, you know this, first century Christians, they didn't follow Jesus because of something they read. They followed Jesus because they'd seen him crucified and raised from the dead. Now, is there a case to be made? Now, wait a minute. First of all, for 300 years, they didn't all see Jesus crucified and raised from the dead. So that's not true. Okay. So that's, that's not accurate. Okay. The original people, but after that, many of them were not eyewitnesses of that. So you can't say for 300 years. That's just not the case. Many of the people who believed after may not have even been in Jerusalem in the day that that happened. They were believing based off the preaching of the apostles and what they were preaching. Does not their words become then scripture? Okay, but even even if you say they didn't believe because of the New Testament, were they not believing in many cases in regards to the Old Testament? Because when you look at the preaching in the book of Acts, are they not using the Old Testament scriptures? So isn't a lot of the preaching... Uh, isn't a lot of the preaching of the apostles based off Old Testament scripture? So in a roundabout, they were believing because of scripture, right? And then you have the whole need for apostolic authority. And they that ap- apostolic authority was confirmed by signs and wonders. That's why you had the apostles. And then you have the apostles. And then the uh, we don't believe in apostolic succession. Once the apostles, then we finally get a completed canon at the end of the, the apostolic era, I guess we could say. Made? I mean, is there a case to be made that the Bible is without error? Yes, there is a case to be made. And if you'll give me 
three weeks of your undivided attention, I can make the case because I studied under the master, right? But is this view of the Bible an essential to being a follower of Jesus? No. Okay, so he's trying to draw a very fine line here. And I understand this is the kind of sermon that is perfect for Christian social media drive-bys, all right? Because you can take a couple of these statements and you can make him look like a heretic. But if you look right there, what he's saying is when it comes, hey, to believe in Jesus, to be a Christian, does someone have to say, I believe in the inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture? I would argue someone doesn't have to believe that in order to be saved. They do have to believe in the truth of the message that Jesus is the eternal son of God, that he was born of a virgin, came to this earth, kept the law for you. He died for you because you are a sinner who deserves God's wrath. The only hope is not in what you do, but in what Christ did. And then by faith, his righteousness is imputed to you. Believing in the death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. I'm not putting everything in proper order, but you get the idea. You would have to believe that information is true, and you trust it, and you believe it. So, that, but, but you would not have to believe that the scriptures are inspired and inerrant. You, there would be no, because then you would have to, in your evangelism, you would have to do a whole thing about the inerrancy and infallibility and the inspiration of scripture, which rarely does anyone do in any form of evangelism. Now, at some point, they need to be taught that, yes. They do have to believe the information they're being given is accurate. Now, I think logically, if they're going to believe the information about Jesus that you're going to give them about God and about sin and about imputation, about the death, burial, and resurrection, about the incarnation, if they're going to believe that is true, then logically, that's only going to... I mean, at some point, logically, things are going to break down. If they start rejecting the other parts of the Bible, then it's going to be just a slow walk to they're going to start rejecting, well, then other things. And at some point, how much of Scripture can you reject? But from a purely technical standpoint, not thinking of all the logical implications, when I got saved... When I, when I realized I'm a sinner, Jesus died for me. Trust me. I, I was, you know, laying in the pew, weeping so loud that they had to stop the entire church service. And then I came up and, you know, okay, I believe in Jesus. Um, I, I hadn't, you could have asked me 15 questions after that. I would have not had a clue what an, an errancy, infallibility. I wouldn't have known anything. I do remember the night after my salvation and everyone left. The pastor took me to his office. He handed me a Bible. This is the inerrant inspired word of God. And I remember holding it in my hand. I'd already read the Bible uh, as an unbeliever simply to use it to mock Christians. But now it was like, whoa, this is God's word. So I, I didn't question it. I didn't, I, I didn't even quite completely understand what it means inspired. And I didn't understand any of those words. But I remember going home, of course, the first night I've told the story a million times, reading the entire New Testament the first night. But I still, weeks, months later, I still would have probably not even be able to articulate exactly what infallibility, inspiration, or inerrancy even was. It would have been a long time after when I started really understanding what that meant. 
I don't think you could call my salvation into question, right? Or my salvation wasn't real until I learned, understood, and received the doctrine of inspiration or the doctrine of inerrancy or the, I see, I, I understand what he's trying to do here. Now you could argue he's trying to make a, maybe he's trying to make it such a fine distinction here that it's only going to cause problems. I do understand that, but I hear what he's trying to say. He's really trying to answer the question, what must one believe in order to be saved? What must a person believe in order to be saved? What must a person believe? How much information, how many theological uh, things must they get right? All right, let's see where this goes. Let's see where this goes. Our faith does not rise or fall on our ability or your ability to prove that the Bible has no errors. Christianity rises and falls on the identity of Jesus, which is, is validated by the resurrection of Jesus. And this is why, this is why, if you're curious about these kinds of things, this is why Christian apologist, a Christian apologist is somebody who contends for the faith publicly. This is why Christian apologists, and by the way, Dr. Geisler was an extraordinary debater. Um, he would debate um, um, folks in university settings in da- around the city of Dallas, or really even different parts of the state of Texas. And we would all go to sit in the back and just watch him dismantle his opponents because he was so ridiculously smart, a little bit snarky, a little bit funny, and just kind of a scary person in terms of his personality. And so we would watch him just, I mean, he could defend the faith like crazy, but here's what you'll learn. And those of you who are a little bit geeky and you love to watch debates, you know, between Christians and atheists, what you'll discover is this, that Christian uh, Christian apologists They always build their case on the resurrection of Jesus, not the inspiration of the Bible, because they know that the foundation of our faith is not an inspired text. The the foundation of our faith is the event of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, oh man. All right, so the foundation of our faith is the resurrection of, of Christ, not the inspiration of the text. I hear that. But really, how do you prove the case of the resurrection of Christ without the scripture? I understand you can find some quotes, you know, maybe in Roman history where someone seemed to apply that they, you know, maybe you can find some, some manuscripts where there's some people who talk about maybe the tomb being empty or that there was reports of it. But almost inevitably, the real information about the tomb being empty is going to come from the text. So you have to believe at least at a minimum, I would think, that the New Testament and all of its accounts or mentions of the resurrected Christ are at least accurate. So don't you have to believe, like, I understand, it's trying to make these very fine distinctions. And I understand it and I appreciate it, right? I appreciate this, but I'm a little... I just don't know how well that works. I understand in a debate, it, it, because now just remember, in debating, and this, this is just uh, one of the things Christians always forget. So many times in debating, debating is not necessarily who has the truth. Debating is about 
utilizing debate techniques in order to win the debate. A lot of times someone can win a debate and not actually have the truth, right? A lot of this has to go, well, what's the thesis statement that we're arguing? Because sometimes Christians will put forth a thesis statement that they can no way prove logically, rationally. And then they, they're like, because I'm a Christian, this is the thesis statement I'm going to prove. And I'm like, you cannot prove that. You can only accept that by faith because evidence can only get you so far. So I, so I don't really care what people do in debates. I don't really care because that's such a game. It's such a, it's gamesmanship. It's, it's using, tra- it, I, and, and that's someone who was on the debate team. Like, like I, you know, I've got plenty of experience in that world. It's a gamesmanship. So because it's it's a little game to go, hey, 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 I'm going to prove the truth of Christianity by proving the resurrection of Christ, but we don't need the Bible. Okay, well, that's great. That gets you out of using the Bible. So therefore, you don't have to defend the Bible and prove all the things about the Bible. That's a good debate technique because now you don't have to sit there and try to prove that the Bible is inspired, infallible, and inerrant. All you got to do is try to prove the resurrection of Christ. And if you think you can prove that using some historical sources, then dun, 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 Christianity wins. I understand the debate game, all right? But that's just a game. Can't, I mean, based off some historical documents, you, you're really going to use that to try to ascertain the, the historical fact of the resurrection? Man, I don't know. Because then you would have to look at every historical document that you're looking at and look at all the other claims that are made in those historical documents. Do you agree with all the other historical claims within said historical document? Because if you disagree with other claims they make in it, well, then why would you trust what they have to say about the resurrection of Christ? That can backfire on you really quick. You can be like, oh, you quoted that historical document? Well, that individual went on to say this, this, and this. Do you believe that? Well, no. Well, then why do you believe what he says about the resurrection of Jesus? See, that, that's, that's counterproductive as well. I, I just, I, I understand that you're saying my faith is found on the resurrection, but man, I just don't know how you get to the resurrection without scripture. I just don't know how you get there. I, 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 I don't know. I don't, um, I, I, hmm. All right, let's continue. Just to, you know, kind of bold this and italicize this and to underscore the importance of this, I want to read to you one of the most overlooked and yet one of the most important statements in the New Testament written by the man who wrote about half the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. Here's, here's what he said. We've, we've looked at this before, but the significance of this, you can't overlook the significance of this. And again, if you've lost faith over something in or about the Bible, I just want you to lean in. Listen, listen to what Paul, again, who's credited with writing about half the New Testament. I mean, if anybody's gonna say, hey, the Bible's the foundation of the faith because after all, I wrote half the New, I mean, this is the guy, but here's what he said. He said, if Christ, if Jesus has not been raised, all my preaching, my entire ministry, me risking my life going around the Mediterranean rim is useless. Wait, <laughs> Paul, wait. All of your preaching, he says, not just mine, ready? Our preaching, Peter's preaching, John's preaching, James, the brother of Jesus preaching, and Matthew's preaching, anybody who's out there preaching about Jesus, it is useless. Wait, you're, you're telling us that the, your entire ministry, the integrity of your entire ministry hinges on an event that took place outside the walls of Jerusalem, the resurrection of Jesus? 
Absolutely. Then he doubles down. Not only is my preaching useless, so is your faith. To which we say, wait a minute, that's unfair. You don't even know me. He's like, I don't have to know you. If you're basing anything in your life on the claims of Jesus or the teaching of Jesus, it's useless. It's a waste of time because the only reason we take that rabbi from Nazareth seriously was the resurrection because it affirmed what he claimed about himself. The problem with Jesus was not what he taught. The problem with Jesus is what he said about himself. And only crazy people say the kinds of things he said about himself, crazy people and the people for whom it's true. And the resurrection of Jesus validated his claims to be the son of God, the resurrection, the resurrection and the life and your king. Sorry, someone just said, doesn't that mean I have to believe what Paul wrote is accurate to follow this point? Yeah, I, I, that's, it seems kind of weird. Like, hey, hey, guys, look, 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 look. If you don't believe the Bible, that's okay. Just listen to what Paul said in the Bible. Okay. But because Paul says, hey, if the resurrection didn't happen, well, then nothing else matters. Well, I do agree that if the resurrection didn't, didn't occur, then nothing matters. But how do we know about the resurrection? Where do we get the eyewitness account supposedly of the resurrection from? Dun, 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 dun. The scriptures, okay, the scriptures, right? The scriptures. I think other historical documents can confirm that the tomb was empty. I think other historical documents can confirm that those claim that Jesus rose from the dead. But any, I think the closest we can get to any quote unquote eyewitness account is right here. So it's like he's saying, hey, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, your faith is in vain. See, you don't need the, you don't need an inspired Bible. You don't need an infallible Bible. You just need the resurrection. Well, that's great, Andy Stanley. But where do I get the information about the resurrection? Oh, yeah, from the Bible. And not only that, you're wanting me to believe what Paul had to say. Hey, listen to what Paul says. You don't need the Bible. You just need the resurrection. Well, okay, but I've got to have the Bible to even know Paul said that. So (laughs) I don't understand. It's like we're talking in circles here. But Paul's still not done. A few verses later, he says this. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. We're like, wait, 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 I'm not in my sins. I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And, and Peter and Paul saying, it's a fairy tale. None of it's true. Everything I've done is a waste of time. All of your faith, all, it's all fiction. You've just convinced yourself it's a fairy tale. None of this is real. None of this is matters except for that single event that changed everything. No, I completely believe, I, I completely agree that if Jesus did not raise from the dead, our faith is completely in vain and the scriptures are not true, <laughs> right? If you can prove to me Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then the Bible is false because the Bible is the one who testifies it, who prophesies that he will raise from the dead, who it it's all in the scriptures, Right. And you are still separated from God, regardless of what you think, because no one has paid for your sin, because Jesus was claiming things about himself that were not true. His point is simply this, that the foundation of our faith is an event, the resurrection that launched a movement, the church of Jesus, that ultimately assembled the first Bible in the fourth 
century. So is the Bible important? (laughs) It's extraordinarily important. While the Bible is not the foundation of our faith, it's certainly not irrelevant to our faith, but, and this is my point, this is so important. There is no single, there is no single modern view of inspiration that is essential to following Jesus. And this is why I wanted to talk about this. There is no, I'm gonna come back to this word in a minute. There is no single modern view of inspiration that is essential to following Jesus. Now, some of you are thinking, Andy, I don't even care about this. I mean, you're, you're raising questions I've never asked. Can we just talk about something practical? I get that. We'll, we'll get back to that. Some of you are thinking, Andy, why, why belabor the point and you know, risk your career? I mean, why is this so important? This is extraordinarily important to you and it's extraordinarily important to me and it is extraordinarily important to us. And let me tell you who else it's important to. It's important to your children and your grandchildren and your great grandchildren. And why would I use the word modern? Here's why. When a specific view of inspiration, when a specific view of inspiration, that it's you know, verbally inspired or there aren't any errors or whatever view, whatever, however you wanna tease that out, however you wanna define it. When a specific view of inspiration is elevated to the status of doctrine, fundamental, essential, The Bible becomes an obstacle to faith for some people. In other words, okay, the Bible could be an obstacle to faith for some people, but isn't it through the hearing of God's word? That's where faith comes from. It's by the hearing of God's word. It's through the preaching of God's word. That, isn't that what we're told to do? Are you saying that we preach Christianity apart from God's word? Hey, the Bible could be, if, if, we, if we speak of an errant, infallible Bible, that could be an obstacle to faith. But isn't it the scriptures, the preaching of the scriptures that produces faith? Doesn't faith come by hearing and hearing by the word of God? Now, if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, then do I not have to imply, obviously it's implied then, that what I'm preaching, teaching, and reading is then accurate and true, and therefore, you're, whether you have, quote unquote, what you call a modern view of inspiration, you, you have the idea that it is trustworthy. It is from God. When a view of inspiration is elevated to the status of Jesus is the son of God, or when it's elevated to the status of doctrine and essential, the actual Bible, this is tragic, the Bible becomes an obstacle to faith. That's why I want to say again, I'm having a hard time with that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Isn't that in the book of Romans? Is that not in the book of Romans? Or am I, am I imagining it, right? Am I imagining this? Okay, hang on. Let me, let me look this up. Faith comes by hearing. Hang on. Faith comes by hearing. I believe it's Romans 10, 17. Yeah, it is Romans 10, 17. It was an early scripture I had to memorize as a young Christian. Romans 10, 17. So then faith come by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He's saying it's an obstacle. It's an obstacle because if you, if you elevate the inspiration of scripture to say Jesus being the son of God, 
well, then it's a problem. But telling people that Jesus is the son of God is not a problem. Hey, believing that Jesus is the son of God, that's not an obstacle to faith. But believing the Bible is inerrant, that's an obstacle to faith. Well, how is someone going to believe Jesus is the son of God apart from the Bible, (laughs) right? And they would have to at least believe The section that says Jesus is the son of God, they would have to believe at least that section is inerrant and infallible and from God, or why else would they believe it? This is, I understand the distinction he's trying to make, but the more he tries to make a distinction, the more his own case seems to collapse in and of itself. It's like an an implosion. It's imploding. If you left faith because of something about this or in this, you got to lean back in at least for a few minutes. When we make a specific view of inspiration elevated to the status of doctrine, do you know what happens? We eliminate room for questions. Wait, you mean to tell me? Well, I I can't explain it, but that's what the Bible said. That's what God's word said. So don't question it. That's what God's word says. Yeah, but I don't understand. Well, you don't get to understand. This is just what God's word says. Okay, first of all, that's just absolute, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting ready to get irritated. That's trash. Because I believe in the inerrancy, the inspiration of scripture, and I never say don't ask questions. I ask a million questions. I struggle all the time. This doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make any sense. So that's not true. You can believe in the inerrancy and infallibility and inspiration of scripture and ask a million questions. That's just completely not true. Now, some people use the inerrancy of scripture to shut down questions, but that's the, that's the fear of the person. That's not that, that doctrine doesn't, to me, the doctrine allows me to ask questions because all of my questions and doubts and concerns and confusion will not impact, obviously, the scriptures because the scriptures are what they are. So I, I, I just think that that's not, that's not fair. That's just completely not fair. If you, if you elevate the inerrancy and inspiration of scripture, then you you eliminate questions. No, that's that's some people have done that, but that's on the people who've done that. So you just accept it, move on. But no, no, it's God's word. It's, pr- it's, it's all true. You can't you can't ask questions. You can't be curious. And if I can poke around a little bit for some of you who are raised like me and believe like me, not only can you not be curious, sometimes you can't be honest because you're reading this and you're like. I don't, I'm just, I don't want to read that part anymore. I don't, I don't, oh, no, no, I don't like that part. Jesus has a sword in his mouth and he's going to smite his enemies and be covered. In, I don't like that part either. So you know what? I'm just, I'm just going to kind of stay right here in the middle. I like Psalms and I like Jesus and that other stuff somebody's just else going to have to figure out. You can't even be honest about your own faith and your own view of the Bible. The reason some of you chuckled, it's like, <laughs> Who says you can't be honest? Okay, that don't blame a, the you. Okay, never blame the doctrine for how people may misuse it or abuse it. The abuse of a doctrine, the misuse of a doctrine does not disqualify or disprove a doctrine. 
People misuse and abuse the doctrine of eternal security. People can abuse, people can misuse, people been misusing and abusing scripture from the very beginning. That does not mean the scriptures are not true. Let's condemn the misuse of it. Let's not condemn the doctrine. All right. Oh, I can't, that's something, that's such a, a logical fallacy. Hey, this can't be true because someone misused it. Okay. Well, Get me, you know, because because there have been mean teachers. Let's say there, there was a time that if you got punctuation wrong or grammar wrong, a, a teacher would would hit you with a ruler because no, 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 no. Grammar, there's rules. You don't violate those rules. Well, because people don't allow you to question or doubt or struggle with grammar and punctuation. Should we throw out grammar and punctuation because p- mean people did mean things about like that's just ridiculous. Because people won't allow questioning or struggles because that's not, or won't allow you to be honest. Blame the people who do that. Don't blame the doctrine. Exactly. My kids keep asking me about those parts. I'm like, don't look at those parts. Look at the other parts, right? Well, that, that, that's no way to live. That's no way to worship. That's no way to approach God created, you know, 600 plus different kinds of beetles. I mean, are you kidding? We should be the most curious and the most open-minded people in the world because our faith isn't anchored to a perfect text. Our faith is anchored to a solitary event outside the walls of Jerusalem that changed everything, including the people who were there and knew Jesus personally. And if our faith is anchored to that event, I don't know how we learn about the event apart from the text. And if the text is not trustworthy, how then can I have faith in an event that I wasn't at, that I did not see, that I did not witness, and that many people claim never took place? Now, us conservatives, and I'm so conservative theologically, us conservatives, we trend this way because we were told, right? We were told an error, an error in any part of it undermines the credibility of all of it. I hear this all the time, that an error in any part of it undermines the credibility of all of it. Okay, look up here. That's true of your passport. (laughs) That is not true of the Bible. The all or nothing view is mistaken and it is unnecessary. And the problem is the reason we're talking about it, it creates an unnecessary off ramp to faith. It sets people up for a crisis of faith. The apparent discrepancies and contradictions, this is fascinating to me because I like church history. The you know, apparent contradictions, it says this, but it says that, and these guys don't agree, all that stuff. Do you know, you check it out. That stuff didn't bother anybody in Christendom for the first five centuries. In other words, the people that followed the apostles, the people that wrote and led and suffered and died to protect these ancient texts, none of them were hung up on the fact that some of the details didn't coordinate and they didn't understand how some of the things in the Old Testament could have happened. They just weren't hung up on that. The group that came after the apostles, after they all were martyred or died, they're called the church fathers. The church fathers, many of the church fathers actually knew and were trained by and taught by the apostles. And the church fathers, again, they just weren't hung up on what we get hung up on in terms of the sophistication of the text. I'll I'll give you um, 
a good example of that. There was a fourth century bishop from Constantinople. Um, his name is John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom. You may have seen quotes by John Chrysostom if you've ever read church history. Fourth century bishop. Here's what he says, and I chose this in particular. Here's what he says about the apparent contradictions or misalignments in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, if you've ever read the uh, different accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, you know they don't line up perfectly. You know, it's like one person or was it four? And there's so many Marys and you know, who got there first and who, I mean, it's, it's just the, the details don't line up. And of course, you know, agnostics and people who poke fun say, look, there's, it doesn't even line up. Why should we believe all this? Hey, the men and women who brought us the gospels were not bothered by that. The next generation wasn't bothered by that. The next generation, so... Now, wait a minute. You just said our entire faith is based off that event of the resurrection. Now you're saying, well, I mean, the Bible, it doesn't all match up. We don't really know when it comes to the resurrection. Who was there? Who was for? Who was? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Then where do we get the, where's the factual accurate information then about the resurrection? Don't you have to deal with those issues then in the text? fourth century um, bishop, here's, here's his approach. Here's what he writes about. It. It's a little clunky because it's, it's old and it's translated. John writes this, but if there be anything touching time or places, like when this happened or where this happened, which they, the gospel writers, have related differently. In other words, they tell the same story, but they tell it differently. This nothing injures the truth of what they have said. In other words, we don't feel like we have to sand off the rough edges and make it all work together. I mean, we know the point they're trying to make, but those things, he goes on, which constitute our life, how to live our lives and furnish out our doctrine. Nowhere is any of them found to have disagreed, no, not ever so little. In other words, this is his way of saying, right, it didn't all line up perfectly, but so what? We got the gist of the story. And besides, Jesus rose from the dead. Everybody agrees on that. This is so confusing. Someone just said, well, wait a minute. Aren't the gospels the things that we have to believe? Yes, the gospel. So what he's saying is, hey, you got to trust the gospels. And some of it doesn't make, make sense and it doesn't match up. But just don't worry about that because we get the gist of the story. And after all, Jesus rose from the dead and everyone agrees on that. Do they? Does everyone agree on that? Do, do they? Because isn't it some Bible scholars who say that, wait, I believe Mark, that the, the ending there that may speak of the resurrection wasn't actually there. So therefore, Mark didn't record the resurrection. Therefore, this causes doubt. Doesn't people, I mean, people call, raise questions sometimes in regards to the trustworthiness of the resurrection. So he's trying to say, hey, you gotta, you gotta believe at least the gospels. But I mean, even the gospels don't match up. And I mean, hey, just don't worry about it. We get the gist of the story. Because after all, our faith is not really in a Bible without error. It's in a, in a Event. However, we need the Bible to give us the event. But when the Bible talks about the event, it doesn't all match up. But hey, just don't worry about that. The fact that it doesn't match up because the event occurred. How do you know the event occurred? Well, it's in that book called the Bible where all the events don't really match up. But hey, you don't have to worry about them matching up. Hey, aren't you glad you came? <laughs> and the reason a minute ago that I inserted the word modern, modern is this, and this is so important. The precision the precision that we demand from written text today was not an ancient expectation. 
That the precision, in other words, we want grammar to be right, spelling to be right, everything to match. You know, if it's a copy of, a, you know, we're making a copy, oh, it's not. A, the, we, we, the reason we, have, we demand such precision in our modern world is because we can pull it off. But in a world that was mostly illiterate, and they were illiterate not because they weren't smart, they were illiterate because in order to learn to read, there has to be something to read. And texts were so expensive and people didn't have access. So in a world that was primarily illiterate, the precision that we demand from a written text was not even, was, they never even considered such a thing back in ancient times. Again, is there a case to be made that the Bible is without error? Yes. Is holding that view essential to following Jesus? No. And if that's why you left, you should reconsider. Now, the more conservative you you are like me, I realize the more troublesome this message is. And I understand that. But here's why I'm taking the risk. Our, and I say our collectively, our approach to ministry is informed by something the apostle Peter said at a critical junction in the life of the ancient church. There was a meeting in, in Acts chapter 15. This is about 20 years after the resurrection. Some of you know about this. And they had a real big conflict in the church. And the conflict in the church was around the scripture, not the Bible. In fact, the gospels hadn't even been written yet. The apostle Paul's just beginning to write. The conflict in the church around the scripture was around what we would consider the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, the Jewish or the Hebrew scripture. But the conflict was not around whether or not it was inspired. It wasn't about inspiration. The challenge, the conflict was around application, which was a much bigger deal. There's no way that I can even begin to um, explain, or I I think uh, uh, elicit the emotions that were in the room as they debated the place of their Bible in the local church. In other words, we have this, they didn't call it a Bible. It was just the books or is the Old Testament. They didn't even call it that because only Christians called it old. The Jewish people, it wasn't old. It's like, no, this is our Bible. But the question is, what do we do with this? And one group said, well, we have to teach it to all the Gentiles. They have to become Jewish in order to become Christian. They have to follow and embrace the Messiah the way the Messiah is described and outlined and taught by Moses before they can embrace Jesus as Messiah. Basically, they've got to learn our culture, eat our food, practice our morality. And the men, they got to have a little surgery. And so this is, in fact, this is in the text, Acts 15, read it for yourself. They were requiring that all the Gentile men be circumcised because you've got to be part of the covenant of Moses before you can become part of the new covenant. This is what they were arguing for. On this, and, and the group that was arguing for this is so fascinating to me, is where these were priests who had become Jesus followers. In other words, and Pharisees who've become Jesus followers. Well, what in the world would cause a Pharisee who, you know, just trail around behind Jesus and persecuted him for three and a half years? What in the world do you think it took to change their mind? The resurrection of Jesus. Now they're in Christians and they're in the church and they're in Jerusalem and they're leaders and they're saying, hey, these Gentiles have to become Jewish before they can be a Christian. Peter, the apostle Peter and Paul are saying, oh no, they don't. And they're arguing the opposite. Now listen to what they're now, wait a minute. Didn't many of them become Christians after hearing Peter preach where he made references to the Old Testament? Because most of them weren't witnesses to the resurrection, right? They found out that the tomb was empty. Many thought it was the bodies were stolen. Like there was all the theories. You can't say, well, they became Christians just because of the resurrection. Didn't they become Christians by hearing the preaching of God's word of by Peter? And therefore, by faith comes 
faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I, I don't know if that's a complete accurate representation of what happened. And we're going to have to wrap this up here shortly. They're arguing. They're arguing that Gentile Christians, which is most of us, do not have to learn, memorize, study. They certainly would never own one, a copy or embrace the entire law, the Old Testament law. Basically, they were saying they don't have to do anything that Moses commanded the ancient Jews, our forefathers, to do. Now, we have some suggestions because we got to somehow merge these groups where we're going to have a Jewish church and a Gentile church. I mean, this was a colossal issue, and this is so cool. The debate goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then James stands up. James, the brother of Jesus, who didn't follow Jesus until after the resurrection. Now he's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem where these events took place. James stands up. He says, All right, I've made a decision. Here's what he says. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Peter has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Peter has just told this story. I wish I had time to tell. What's hilarious is he's getting all this information from the scriptures. <laughs> so, so now he's now in Acts. So now he Hey, we, you don't have to believe in an infallible scripture, but I'm going to try to prove my point by quoting scripture. <laughs> it's just bizarre because he's trying to make an argument that you don't, you don't really need an infallible Bible. You don't really have to believe that. But all the things he's using to try to make his point is, well, scripture. And so he says, well, all you have to do is believe in the trustworthiness of the gospels. Then he called into question, well, you know, the gospels don't really line up, but then all you really need is the resurrection. But hey, how do we know this? Well, look what Peter and James did in Acts 15. What's it? And then he's already made a reference to Paul. So like he's making reference to scripture. So uh, is all of these other scriptures you're referencing true, accurate, infallible, inspired? Mine, ready? Our preaching, Peter's preaching, John's preaching, James the brother, Matthew's preaching, anybody who's out there preaching about Jesus, it is useless. Wait. Okay, wait a minute. I, uh, I just jumped way ahead there. Okay, I think I just, I, uh, I, I clicked on something wrong, so I got to find the spot that we we're at. I apologize. I got to apologize. Uh, I just got to find the spot. It should take a second, so just be patient. In particular, here's what he says about the apparent contradictions or misalignments. Follow and embrace the Messiah the way the Messiah is described and outlined and taught by Moses before they can embrace Jesus as Messiah. Basically, they've got to learn our culture, eat our food, practice our morality, and the men... They got to have a little surgery. And so this is, in fact, this is in the text. Acts 15, read it for yourself. They were requiring that all the Gentile men be circumcised because you've got to be part of the covenant of Moses before you can become part of the new covenant. This is what they were arguing for. On this, and, and the group that was arguing for this is so fascinating to me. Is where These were priests who had become Jesus followers. In other words, and Pharisees who've become Jesus followers. Well, what in the world would cause a Pharisee who, you know, just trailed around behind Jesus and persecuted him for three and a half years? What in the world do you think it took to change their mind? 
the resurrection of Jesus. Now they're in Christians and they're in the church and they're in Jerusalem and they're leaders and they're saying, hey, these Gentiles have to become Jewish before they can be a Christian. Peter, the apostle Peter and Paul are saying, oh no, they don't. And they're arguing the opposite. Now listen to what they're arguing. They're arguing that Gentile Christians, which is most of us, do not have to learn memorize, study, they certainly would never own one, a copy or embrace the entire law, the Old Testament law. Basically they were saying, they don't have to do anything that Moses commanded the ancient Jews, our forefathers to do. Now we have some suggestions because we got to somehow merge these groups where we're gonna have a Jewish church and a Gentile church. I mean, this was a colossal issue and this is so cool. The debate goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then James stands up. James, the brother of Jesus, who didn't follow Jesus until after the resurrection. Now he's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem where these events took place. James stands up. He says, all right, I've made a decision. Here's what he says. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Peter has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Peter has just told this story. I wish I had time to tell it. It's, it's hard to believe it's even in the Bible. Peter tells a story about being invited to a Gentile home and he didn't wanna go. He's invited to a Gentile home to tell them about Jesus. And Peter's like, I'm not going. And he gets there and he finally goes and listen to how he opens. <laughs> this is how he opens his message to all these Gentiles. <clears throat> um, I've never entered the home of a Gentile before and I never wanted to, implication, because you people are nasty, but God made me come here. Okay, so here's what I wanna say to you. Really, you read it for yourself. It is so offensive. Peter says to this group, look, I get it. I mean, he's just quoting scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture as if it's all accurate and true (laughs) to prove that you don't really need an infallible inspired Bible or to believe it in order to be saved. I, I, uh, it's so weird. Okay. I get it. I was as anti-Gentile and I was so worried about getting Gentile stuff on me as you guys, but I'm telling you, God has opened the way to the whole world. And if it means setting aside in some way, the way we're thinking about it, our scripture, our Bible in order to let them in, we do it. So James says, it is my judgment. I love this. In fact, this statement is on the walls of all of our offices at all of our churches. These are our marching orders. This is why I'm making such a big deal out of it. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, if our text has become an obstacle We need to remove it. These men and women are trying to get into the kingdom of God and there's no way in the world we should allow our Bible to be an obstacle. Now, come on, if you're gonna, Andy, if you're gonna quote the text, quote the text. They don't say, we can't let our Bible get in the way. We can't, you're just adding words. You know, hey, how about do this? Do with the infallible inspired text and not your paraphrase. They don't say, we can't let the Bible get in the way. We can't let our text get in the way. We've got to move our text out of the way so that they can come to Jesus. Well, you can't come to Jesus without the text because it's the one that tells you about Jesus. Okay. Oh my goodness. To their faith, 
Because the essential element of our faith is a brand new king. The shadow caster has arrived. Everything our text pointed to is a reality. Wait, we, we can't let our text get in the way, but it's our text that pointed to everything. So, so then you can't let, you can't then get rid of your text since your text is the one that foretold. And that's why many of the Jews believed because then they realized that the Old Testament text actually pointed them to Jesus. They needed the Old Testament text. Just as they decided they shouldn't make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God, we're not going to make it difficult either. The Bible should never be an obstacle to faith. Is it important? Of course it's important. Is it essential? Yes, it's essential, but it should never be an obstacle because the I don't get how the Bible is an obstacle to faith when faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then someone just said in text uh, in chat, yes, it's a strange application of the text that could be errant. It could be, you know, with error Anyway, if you're going to imply that it could be with error, then why go through all this point to apply all of this text to the subject? Hey, we can't let the Bible be an obstacle to faith, but it's the Bible that that's how people come to believe and to come to know what to believe is through the proclamation of the text. The Bible isn't the starting place. Jesus is the starting place. And I know. That's ridiculous. The Bible's not the starting place. Jesus is the starting place. And where do you learn about Jesus? From the text for crying out loud. How do you tell someone about Jesus apart from the text? Hey, I've got this uh, documentary from the History Channel. They're going to talk about Jesus and they don't reference the Bible one time. That's where we'll start with your evangelism. Of course, they say Jesus wasn't the eternal son of God. Yes, they say he wasn't born of a virgin. Yes, they said he didn't do any miracles. And yes, they're not so sure about his resurrection. But that's what we're going to start with because, hey, we can't start with the Bible. We've got to start with Jesus. And I guess it's the Jesus not found in the Bible. Because if you're going to start with Jesus, where do you go to teach people about Jesus? Oh, and I hear the critics already. It's like, yeah, but the gospels are in the Bible. Okay, just... We've talked about the historical sequence of things. That's a ridiculous argument. There was no, the Matthew predated, quote, the Bible. Mark predated, all the New Testament documents predated the Bible because the Bible wasn't assembled until the fourth century. So there's no argument to be made there. The issue is, there may not be a Bible, but there's scripture. So I don't, what, what are you talking about? You say, we start with Jesus, not with scripture. And you say, well, well, these predate the Bible, but they're still scripture. So you're still starting with the scripture if you're starting with the gospels. What are you talking about, Andy? We start with Jesus and not the scripture because somehow Matthew, Mark, Luke predates the formation of the canon. What are you talking about? Who's Jesus? The issue is, who is Jesus? That's it. That's the starting point. That's the ending point. That's the launching point. So what must we believe? Who is Jesus? And how do we find out who Jesus is? I don't know. This may come to a shock uh, to you, Andy. (laughs) The scripture. (laughs) It's scripture. About the Bible. 
in order to be a follower of Jesus. So I put together kind of a long, clunky statement. This is just my answer to that question. The Bible, here's what we have to believe. The Bible documents God's redemptive activity in the world culminating in the arrival of his final king. Listen, the reason Gentile people eventually got really, really, really interested in the Old Testament wasn't because they were interested in becoming Jewish. They weren't even that interested in the Jews. They realized that the Old Testament documented God's redemptive activity in the world and that it had culminated in their lifetime with the arrival of the final king. Listen, the Bible provides us with the backstory and the main story. The, the Bible provides us with the backstory. The The Bible provides us the backstory and the main story, meaning then the Bible is absolutely essential. I don't understand this. Like, like it's, 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 look, it's a great thing to be smart. It's a great thing to be well-educated. Andy Stanley is probably better educated than I am. Andy Stanley is probably much smarter than I am. I have no problem acknowledging that. But you can be so smart that you start trying to make distinctions where all you do is wrap yourself into a, 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 like a, a pretzel, like a ball of yarn. He's all like, he's saying one thing, then contradicting it, then going back the different direction. He's trying to make a distinction, yet then he's using the very book that we don't need to believe leave in order to be saved, but we have, we get the information from the text. Uh, it's just like, you know, you start with Jesus, you don't start with the text, but how do you learn about Jesus from the text? But wait a minute, there wasn't a completed Bible. It, yeah, oh, what are you, t- it's just all over the place. Old Testament is a saga of God's people clinging to Yahweh as he prepares the world for his final king. It's, it's ancient history with a divine purpose. It's, a, it's, I mean, it's an over-the-top graphic account of God wading into the mess created by our sin to see the story of our redemption played out to its bitter and bloody, crucify him, crucify him, and the story arc of the entire Bible. And all of that comes from the scriptures. <laughs> should cause all of us, all mankind, the entire human race to drop to our knees in gratitude for what God has done on our behalf, for what God has done on behalf of the world. So I read it every single day. And so should you. If for no other reason, and if you're a skeptic and if you've walked away from faith, and look up here for one second. If for no other reason, here's why you should read the Bible. Because the words of Jesus recorded in the gospels are the very words of God. <laughs> what is going on? So the words of Jesus and the gospels are the very word of God. You're literally now claiming inerrancy. You're claiming inspiration. You're claiming infallibility. I, I, I don't understand what is happening. The words that we discovered last week are the words that bring us back to center. 
The words that keep us from moving too far to the left are too far to the right in our culture or in our personal lives. The words of Jesus inform our conscience. They fuel our faith and they direct and inform our behavior. And if, if just the words of Jesus were elevated to the place where they should be, it would revolutionize the church and perhaps revolutionize our culture and the world. So. Yeah, someone just said, isn't the whole thing the word of God? I, I will say you have to believe the whole thing, the word of God. But what he seems to want to argue is, hey, you don't have to believe all of the difficult parts. You don't have to believe that revelation stuff or the, the creation account or Leviticus or you don't have to believe any of that or all the crazy kind of seeming apparent contradictions and kings and chronicles. You can just ignore all of that. But you got to believe the words of Jesus are the very words of God. Now, of course, logically, well, if I can't believe the rest of it, then how can I believe that? The whole thing, the whole thing just has so many logical fallacies built into all of this. But he sounds really smart trying to articulate it, I guess. That's our fundamentalist. That's what's essential. That's what we must believe in order to follow Jesus. And if you'll just embrace the first one, if you'll just embrace the first one, that Jesus is God's, that Jesus is God's son and our king, our resurrected, worthy to follow king, the rest... It's kind of detail. But as a teenager, it's detail that changed my life. It's detail that has the potential. If you lean in or lean back in, it's detail that will change yours as well. Because John, who was there for all of it, Looking back as an old man, said, I, I, I grew up as a Jewish boy. I, I know the whole story. I know the whole story arc. And now I've experienced the coming of the king. And here's what I would tell you. For God so loved, and once upon a time, I didn't believe this. So for God so loved the world, even the Gentiles in the world. For God so loved the world that he does what you do when you love someone. You, he gave. He's, he's back to quoting scripture. I, I don't understand this. It's almost like, hey, guys, I know a lot of you don't believe a lot of things about the Bible. I'm going to find a way to help you become a Christian without believing everything about the Bible. So I'm going to try to make this weird distinction by using the Bible that you don't have to necessarily believe. And I'm going to say that you don't really need to believe the Bible. You just got to believe in the resurrection. And, and you don't start with the Bible. You start with Jesus. But he doesn't really articulate how you get to the resurrection in Jesus without the very Bible that you're saying you don't have to necessarily necessarily believe is without error. You can believe a lot of it is without error, but you got to believe what Jesus said are the actual words of God. He doesn't try to explain how those things can be error, but that doesn't have to be error. Like, because Andy Stanley tells you that the words of the gospel are without error, then they're without error, but everything else can be error. But just because Andy Stanley tells you to, I guess. Dave. But we didn't see this coming. He gave his unique son and he gave him to us first as someone we could see and touch and hear and our hands have handled the word of life he would write. For God's Now he's quoting from 1 John. So he's quoted from John 3 and now he's quoting from 1 John 1. 
Well, I, I, at this point, he's just going to make reference to pretty much the entire Bible. So then I guess all of it is without error or only the parts Andy Stanley quotes. Of the world that he gave us what was most precious to him. He gave us his son. He gave us his life that whoever would lean in, that whoever would believe, that whoever would be open, allow themselves to be convinced would not be lost to God anymore but would experience eternal life. That's why it's good news of great joy for all people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's just amazing It's just amazing. It's amazing love. It's amazing grace. It's an amazing story. It's amazing that we even have the story. It's all just amazing. And I pray that wherever this lands with us, whether it's a reminder or a call for renewal or a call for repentance or, oh my goodness, I I gotta think about this, that we would just lean in and say, God, if, if that's true, have your way with me. Who am I? So please, just in this moment, in these moments, just give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we just heard and the courage to embrace it with all our lives. And would you please, please raise up Christians, Jesus followers, churches to get this right for your sake, for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, we've gone from uh, 119 minutes. So I'm it's the longest sermon review I have ever done. I probably should have broken this up into three parts, but I just, I had to finish it. So I, I don't know what to say, ladies and gentlemen. That's the sermon right now that everyone is yelling and screaming and there's so much controversy about. I do feel that people are not been fair and ripped these out of context. I do know, see what Andy Stanley's trying to do. I'm trying to understand what he's trying to do, but it's so contradictory and it's not even really circular reasoning. It's just all, it's contradictory reasoning. It's all over the place. I do understand that, hey, what does a person have to believe in order to be saved? I can't say, well, they have to believe everything about inspiration and understand that. But I do know they have to believe that what they've heard about Jesus from the scriptures is true and accurate. So then logically, if I would follow, if I'm going to believe what is said about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, I guess I'm going to go ahead and believe everything else that's said about Jesus and the rest of the Bible. In fact, I'm going to believe the rest of the Bible because if I start questioning part of it, then I'm going to question all of it. Andy Stanley says that that's not a valid argument, that that's not fair. That's true of a passport, but it's not true of God's word. The passport, if one part is wrong, all of it is wrong. But with the Bible, a whole lot of it can be wrong. But as long as the gospels are right, but I don't know then why the gospels would be right if everything, if Genesis is wrong, why would Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John be wrong? Because don't we believe it's all inspired by God? Or do you only believe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was inspired, but Genesis wasn't inspired? I don't even know how it works out logically. What a mess. I don't even know what that is. I would love to get your thoughts. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. To the person who suggested this, I, I, I hope that that was beneficial because I am wiped 
out. Okay. I am wiped out. That's the longest sermon review I have ever done. I apologize for how long it went. Hopefully something valuable came from it. That's what's going on in the world of Christianity on this Tuesday, July the 11th, 2023. Thanks for listening. God bless.